They tried to make me, for two weeks straight, make me believe my daughter did this, that she committed suicide, that she actually did this. And I'm like, no, it's not my daughter. It's not my daughter. Every single day, day in and day out. On this episode of Suspect Zero, the vanishing and mysterious death of Tiffany Valenti. Due to some graphic content, listener discretion is advised. Mays Landing, New Jersey is a rural area on the outskirts of the Pine Barrens, west of Atlantic City. It's a quaint town nestled in Southern Jersey, a family-friendly community where people gather and support local merchants, community, and school events. So when a young girl goes missing and is found four miles from her home deceased, the community is left with nothing but questions. On Sunday, July 12th, 2015, New Jersey Transit Train number 4693 was heading from Philadelphia to Atlantic City at 9.50 p.m. With about 40 passengers and crew on board, the train passed under the Tilton Road Bridge in Galloway Township, New Jersey. It was 11.12 p.m. at mile marker 45 when 18-year-old Tiffany Valenti was struck by the traveling train. The New Jersey Transit Police deemed Tiffany's death a suicide without any formal investigations into the facts surrounding her disappearance. Here is what we know about the night in question. 18-year-old Tiffany Valenti attended a cousin's graduation party across the street from her family home. Tiffany left early while her parents remained at the party. At around 9 p.m., one of Tiffany's friends called Tiffany's mother and asked her to meet her back at her home as she claimed Tiffany had stolen her credit card. When they arrived, the friend was yelling and upset and Tiffany denied using the card. This went on for about 10 minutes until the friend finally left. Tiffany's mom, Diane, searched her car and noticed that Tiffany slid the friend's card in the back pocket of her shorts. Diane told Tiffany that she was going inside to tell her father, and a minute later, the two parents returned outside only to find that Tiffany had vanished. When she didn't return a few hours later, they began calling her until her dad, Stephen, found her phone at the end of the driveway. After searching on their own and not finding her, they called the police around 11.30 p.m. Approximately 27 minutes later, the family learned of Tiffany's fate. This twisted and confusing case will leave you with more questions and going down even more rabbit holes than ever before. Welcome to Suspect Zero, where we not only discuss unsolved cold cases, but serial killers whose crimes are lesser known or virtually unknown. I'm Dawn Washburn, and joining me is my co-host, Dr. Michael Arntfield. Hello, Michael. Hey, Dawn. And uh, our listeners will be interested to know if they haven't already picked up on this from your monologue that beginning this third season, we'll be expanding our purview to also look at suspicious vanishings, much like much like this one. And, and we've got a number of other really fascinating cases. Again, obscure cases, but ones that, if not murders, certainly warrant further scrutiny. So these are voices that, that need to be heard as much as the victims that we've discussed in our other lesser known cases. Yes, Michael and I want to thank all of our listeners, loyal and true. We took a small hiatus before recording this season three, and we decided uh, that we were going to cover some missing persons and unsolved mystery cases a little bit more than we did with the serial killers. So we can kind of bring in the, the cases that are lesser known, the ones that people haven't heard of. 
so that if you have a case that maybe you even feel we should cover, you guys could reach out to us on our Facebook page, Suspect Zero Podcast. We're on LinkedIn as well. And if anyone has any information, sometimes people don't even know they have information, but any little bit helps. Also, you can be directed to the What Happened to Tiffany Valenti Facebook page. There's so many minds in there working continuously and and through the night to research this case and bring any new information that they can. So if you go on that Facebook page for Tiffany, that would be great. There's also a petition to sign there, uh, which we will also put on our Suspect Zero Facebook page as well. And this is really a case. So, I mean, she was missing for a period and obviously is then found deceased. We'll be looking at some other cases where the people are still out there alive or dead. But this is really a case that underscores the difference between cause of death and manner of death. So people really fixate on cause of death. And there could be dozens of, of causes of death attributed by a, by a medical examiner, you know, extreme blood loss or exsanguination, as we call it, blunt force trauma, the, the asphyxiation, the list goes on. But manner of death, really, there's five recognized possibilities. A death can be natural, accidental, suicide homicide, or the dreaded fifth category, undetermined, which is sort of a placeholder designation because police and the medical examiner don't really know what happened pending the receipt of further information. So in this case, we have a determination as to manner of death of, of suicide. And this is, is is what really is driving the questions in this case, because their friends and family don't buy it. And as a matter of background and context, my, my group at Western, the Cold Case Society at Western, we took on a case several years ago where, again, there was a determination initially made of suicide. The family had it reinvestigated. It was a drowning death, not a, not a train accident. The family had it reinvestigated because it was, again, like in this case, investigated by a body, specifically the, the military police, who didn't have a lot of experience with, with homicide investigations or even death investigations. And the new investigation conducted by the provincial police then ruled it undetermined. So they, they were able to move it from being a, a suicide to undetermined because there were a lot of suspicious anomalies not properly investigated. And then our evaluation of, of the case led the chief coroner to, to have it reopened as a, as a homicide investigation. So there is precedent for this, for this being done that I've been directly involved in. So I think the first really priority here is to get a second set of eyes on the complete file. Did they properly investigate all of, again, these, these, these loose ends that, that raise more questions than answers? And if they did, then, then, then maybe the determination is, is appropriate. But the fact that that's not happened is, is the problem here because uh, I'm all about, and I think increasingly most police or law enforcement agencies are, are open to peer review have, if you've done nothing wrong, the investigation is thorough and appropriate in the circumstances, open up your books, not necessarily to even an academic group like mine, but uh, a neighboring law enforcement agency, maybe the state police in this case, because when you uh, assign a classification of suicide, there's obviously a number of implications that come with that for for families and, and, and next of kin. So uh, you better be damn sure that that's exactly what happened. And, and based on the evidence that is in the public domain, I'm not sure that they could be damn sure. Right. So now the New Jersey Transit are the ones who investigated the case initially. And according to what people say, New Jersey Transit is not really equipped to do a homicide investigation. 
So technically their, their skills are a little bit more based on figuring out what happened with the train via using the black box and, and the information that's been given to them. So when they ruled this a suicide, it, it, it really cl- it shut the case down. And for years now, I'm sure the family's been mulling over the fact that this is really probably not a suicide. I know a lot of people think it is, but if you go into the case a little bit and you really learn about it and read what other people are saying and, and a lot of feedback, it really, really points to a homicide. Now, if, if for nothing else, if they reopen the case and they reinvestigate this, I mean, what is the harm to reinvestigate something that could potentially be a murder? I mean, we don't want murderers to be walking free and justice needs to be served. It's pretty obvious as to what it is. Many agencies don't want to be, unless they're ultimately compelled to by some consent decree. And there's more police departments subject to consent decree orders, basically meaning that they report to a case management judge and are overseen by the Justice Department because they can't meet basic adequacy standards uh, or commit civil rights violations. So there's more of those, and and I'm talking major cities, that are basically being babysat by the federal government because they can't properly do investigations. So until that happens... Yeah, agencies are very reluctant to to open up the books. And, and again, this varies tremendously by by type of agency. I mean, my my group at the university has been approached by police departments who want a second set of eyes on a case before they present their findings to or their their conclusions to a filing district attorney, for instance, they want to make sure that they've got the, the best case to bring forward. The VDOC Society based in Philadelphia, again, fields a number of requests from law enforcement for expert second opinions on, on cases. So, but then, yeah, you've got other ones that are basically black boxes and they don't, they don't want anyone looking in. And uh, I don't get it because it's, it's, why wouldn't you, as you said, exactly. want to sleep properly at night knowing you were right. And if that takes someone confirming that for you or asking tough questions that maybe gets you thinking twice about your conclusions reached, then then what's the problem with that? And in this case, I think by dint of the position taken, the only way forward is is litigation and then and, and to try to get some kind of court order to to share or or to open the reopen the investigation or share the investigative findings, the complete investigative chronology with, say, the the state police I just gave as an example. And there is, again, a legal precedent for this, whereby recently passed through Congress is the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act. And at the Murder Accountability Project, which is another one of my groups, we we really lobbied to get this bipartisan legislation passed, where if a, a prescribed period goes by and a case remains cold, the family has the opportunity to file a motion in court to get the police department or law enforcement agency of jurisdiction to share their report with another pre-approved agency to basically have it reinvestigated. Now, the original agency retains jurisdiction so that if it's solved, they get the clearance, they get the solve, they get the win, but it would compel them to enlist support of another cooperating agency. So that is law now in the United States. The problem in this case is note the name of the legislation homicide victims families rights act there's nothing for suicide victims families rights act mm. so in, until this gets reclassified as either a homicide or even just undetermined that uh, again like what happened in the case we worked in canada the case of joe grizel until that happens and by moving it to undetermined you've got some new options you're saying well, it's, it's not necessarily a suicide doesn't rule out homicide or some other manner of death so uh, that's the first step is to is to get somebody else to change the the classification. 
And that's what the family is doing at the moment. So they have a lawyer who is rallying for them. And I believe he's actually doing this out of the kindness of his heart. And I have spoken with him. He, he's a very, very kind person. And any any angle you bring him, I mean, he, he kind of gets to the point of where when he's talking to you, he wants to go along with all of the things that everybody's bringing up, all of the findings, people's ideas, their theories. But you come to a standstill. I mean, even when I was reading inside the the, the Facebook page for Tiffany, all these wonderful people, I mean, spending their time in here, just giving all of their theories and checking out Facebook pages and doing their own investigating. And, and it's just amazing to see that even though it's not your child who's missing, that people are still willing to pull together and do this. It's just, it's really, really great. But as you go through all of the comments and your readings, there's nothing can ever be validated. And, and it's almost like you're banging your head up, up, up against a wall. I remember thinking to myself, like, I, I have some theories on this, but even if I put the theories in, nobody is really going to confirm them. And, and you have to be very careful about asking the family because there's only so much they can say. And so I posed a few questions to the family because I, I was hoping maybe some of these could be answered and kind of guide you in, in, in a new direction because there are so many angles to it. You have, you have the friends with the credit card. So no one knows if that was a staged thing, if that was happening on purpose to kind of elicit a response from Tiffany and then move to something that they had planned to do. Some people believe that... Uh, that there's a frat house involved, which I kind of went down that rabbit hole a little bit only because of where the location is to where she was on mile marker 45. For those of you who don't live in the area and really can't put an eye on this, when you visit the site, you'll notice that there was a frat house that was backing up into where the, where the railroad tracks are. Okay guys, so I'm putting this disclaimer on this particular part and segment of the show. By no means have we validated any of this information. However, the information that I'm about to give you is pretty much out there for the public to see. So I am not saying anything other than the facts of what I've seen, of what I researched, and the things that I'm tying back to the case. So there's a few narratives that can fit the timeline of Tiffany's disappearance. The potential scenarios start flooding through your mind, especially when you go and you visit where Tiffany's life was taken. So as we've said, there's a huge rogue of people posing as a fraternity and declaring a relationship with Stockton University. And although Stockton denies any association with the unsanctioned frat, they do seem to protect the accused more than the victim. As one of the employee's sons was involved in an assault case, that would make sense. Another student was in his junior year and working as a sergeant with the Stockton EMS who was also guilty of assaulting and raping young women, especially freshmen around the age of 18. So, after researching various statements from the victims of Pi Kappa Phi and taking in everything we've read about the area, we went down our own unconfirmed rabbit hole. So, I want to direct you first to the victim statements after attending a Pi Kappa Phi party. You can find these statements on their lawyer's website. Um, we'll post on our Facebook page, so let's start here. So, the parties that the Pi Kappa Phi fraternity were, were spilling out were themed. This particular night, someone mentioned, now once again unconfirmed, but someone mentioned there was a meatball party or a meat in the sauce. I'll allow you to draw your own conclusions on that one. One victim stated that she was picked up by three people. These people seemed to be intoxicated, but drove the victim to the frat house where the party was taking place. Now, the victim said they were given a drink that was unsavory, sort of like a salty, watered-down fruit juice containing a date-rape drug. 
Once the victim was incapacitated, they were assaulted and raped by sometimes more than one person. They also made videos of these assaults. Now, who knows if these videos were being sold? I guess we, we won't know. Their clothes were removed along with their shoes. In the first frame of the video, the victim was in her bra and underwear, and her shoes were removed and thrown in a pile of other random clothing at the frat house. And once the victim came to, there was excessive bruising on the face and neck area. Many victims ran ran out without certain articles of clothing just to get away from their attacker and what had happened to them. Once the rapes were reported, there was pretty much no accountability. I mean, the college deterred students from reporting or filing a Title IX because they indicated to the victims that they will not win and they will be better off. After 59 calls to the police over this house at 600 West White Horse Pike, the frat house lost its affiliation with Stockton University in 2010 due to violations of campus policy. Well, no kidding. We know Tiffany was going out that night with friends. What friends? The Wawa supervisor overheard a few kids talking and they stated she was picked up by two girls and a guy. Now, don't forget these kids were groomed to recruit girls to this to these parties. It's almost as if they were they were taught what to do, but it was a very organized racket they had going on. Tiffany's autopsy report stated there was excessive trauma to the neck and face. Now, if Tiffany was given a date rape drug and they didn't account for her being 6'3", and she possibly was aware of some of it, she could have run out the back door, which is actually the entrance to the parties. The back door aligns with where Tiffany would have been found at mile marker 45, or at least in the vicinity. Finally, let's take a a look at what was left behind and found by her mom. So her shoes, her headband, the letter A, a keychain description, and a Wilkes University sweatshirt. If I missed anything, I apologize. But I can't help but think that there, these were possible items that could have been from the frat house. Even the Wilkes sweatshirt could have been left by another student there. Maybe somebody just threw this evidence around in attempts to maybe throw the investigation off or maybe even just taunt the family or give them back something. Now, Tiffany could have been running from her attacker and either crouching to hide or she tripped while running. Again, all speculation. The train was a, was a train that wasn't supposed to be scheduled that night. So the train may have just hit her as she was running away. The quarter mile said by the engineer could have been the attacker far away and then Tiffany ahead running. So maybe his accounts were slightly accurate, but he just couldn't piece it together. Again, speculation. With an unscheduled train coming and a disoriented 18-year-old, it could have just been a series of unfortunate events when referring to the train. Also, could her text that was sent out to an anonymous person, because we don't know who she was sending the text to, but she did say, yes or no, should I do it? Could it have been, should I go to the party? Should I get picked up? One never knows. So we will never know, really, unless we get the case reopened and the manner of death changed to undetermined. And that's what we're trying to do. So with all of these questions circling people's minds, it just seems that if the family is saying she's not suicidal and it really didn't look like that, we should reopen this investigation. So maybe a slight botched investigation, not blaming anyone, but saying that things were definitely missed. So we need to turn our attention to that petition. And this would make a lot of sense as to why all of the kids are not talking. There's far too many people not wanting to speak. Possibly they were threatened. Maybe they were just told not to say anything. I don't know. But it seems like there was a lot of kids not talking. And if they knew about a party or were involved in a party, that would make a lot of sense as to why they're not speaking. So once again, let's just direct you back to the petition. Let's get that petition signed and let, let's get this case reopened. 
So for listeners who aren't familiar with the case, I, I think we can just sort of, I mean, we you've provided the basic facts, but the, the, the sort of loose ends that, that make this suspicious are the fact, as you mentioned, that she is struck by the train in immediate proximity to this this party house where, again, it, it's been documented and corroborated that there had been stupefying drugs issued to the, the women who attended there. There have been sexual assaults there. So this, by definition, is what you'd call a known vice area, which is a classification used for crime scenes when, whether it be Lover's Lane or an open-air drug market or a place where people engage in illegal dumping. And when you have a victim discovered in that location, uh, you have to bear in mind the context and that people frequenting those locations or who are familiar with those locations to adopt them as crime scenes or disposal sites are are engaged in in, in the, the vice activity that normally goes on there. So that in itself is something that was probably lost on original investigators who don't know the literature on this. But on top of that, uh, she had bruising around her neck, unrelated, obviously, to being struck by a train. There was a a talk screen done on her remains, and there was no evidence of alcohol, So, which you would often, again, equate with with train accidents or, or, or party houses, I suppose. So the other thing to bear in mind is that these stupefying drugs that are administered, these date rape drugs, have a very limited half-life and often don't show up in talk screens even just a few hours later. And, and if they're not testing for it, 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 they may not show up anyways. So there's no alcohol involved, and yet she's in the vicinity of this party house. There's bruising to her neck. And really the only thing to suggest that, I mean, it's not just even an accident, is a statement of one of the conductors. And there's another well-known case I'll get to if we have time involving a, a, the statement of a conductor. This was back in the 80s involving a double train fatality that was eventually reopened as a, as a homicide. Uh, but the statement of the conductor is that he basically sees her splay out on, on the tracks. That statement changes a little bit later, and not as though he's being deceptive, but as though you're on a speeding train and you see an anomaly like this. He can't really say what happened before. All he sees is the body going on the tracks. And I think the presumption at the time of investigators, well, she must have laid down, not necessarily. So, I mean, could she have fallen down? That makes it an accident. But the the fact that that limited single eyewitness statement leads them to presume that this was done intentionally. There's no note left. There's no suicidal statements made. There's no history of suicidal ideation. I mean, all the the, the trained fatalities ruled suicides. When I was a, a police investigator, there was some statement made before they left the house. There's multiple eyewitnesses, including not on the train, that see this person intentionally just stand in front of the train of their own volition. We don't have any of that here. So, And if they did do that, again, provide some 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 additional background and and not necessarily again you don't have to come public with this but but have a have a neighboring agency vet the quality of the investigation yeah and and also you know as you're talking some things just came through my my mind that I wanted to say so going back to even the frat house let's just say when the conductor said what he saw and changed his story i mean it could be i mean it could be that he did see somebody first he said he saw somebody a quarter mile away Right. And they and then he said that he saw her dove. She dove on the tracks. But I'm wondering if the quarter mile away could have been somebody who was chasing her and then she was ahead of them and then ran across. Just all these things keep going over your head. (laughs) 
and you can't help but but constantly mull it over. And then you have friends. And is there is there a ringleader in this friend group who who caused this? You just don't know. But but the fact that we're all asking these questions and the fact that we have all of these questions going on tells you that they're not satisfied with this. And so, go ahead. Yeah. The the other case I was going to get to is that of uh, in August of 1987, two boys were were struck by a train, Don Henry and Kevin Ives, and then. Again, initially ruled suicide. The family lobbied to get that properly reinvestigated as a homicide. And unfortunately, it's a, it's a noteworthy case, but unfortunately, it's been sort of fixated on by conspiracy theorists who, who, who believe that because this happened in Arkansas, that these are one of several victims, murder victims silenced by Bill and Hillary Clinton. He was governor of Arkansas at the time. So this has sort of fallen into a, a sort of QAnon type of uh, conspiracy, but unrelated to that theory, the case is noteworthy and is one that I think advocates in this case should should be familiar with because, yeah, some mistakes were made in that investigation and, and sure enough that was revealed later and properly were then reinvestigated unsolved, but just the change of manner of death is 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 is, is important for crucial. for survivors. Yeah, it's crucial. And a lot of the people in the in the on the page who are talking about Tiffany, all they really want is to get justice for the family. And I think that's why we do the podcast. We want to find justice as well. If anything else, we just broadcast so that people could take a look at it. They could be directed to the site. Who knows? Who knows what they know? It's I don't know. It's just a crazy. It's a crazy case, nonetheless. But if anyone has not seen the Unsolved Mysteries episode, you should watch it. If anything, just for the foundation of the story. There's a lot of things left out there. So when they find the shoes, um, when the when her mother finds the shoes on Tilton Road, it they're they're laid out pretty specifically. They're I don't know if they're really thrown there. They're kind of just like put there. It almost looks to me everything related to it is something that relates back to school. Aside from the key tag, we have the letter A that was there, which could really come from anything. But the Wilk sweatshirt that was there, her shoes were there. Just seems like somebody's taunting a little bit with what's going on. Uh, they would clearly have to be from the area for this to show up weeks later as well. And again, I don't want to, I'm just speculating some things. It doesn't mean that I know anything. I'm just speculating. And I just wanted to raise awareness to this case so that people can sign the petition, get this reopened, maybe get it to undetermined, because that's important. Let's just, let's just get the facts out there. And then after that, we can, I feel like at the time that this happened, Michael, you know, kids talk. If they had just put pressure on these kids a little bit, I, I feel like at that time, somebody would have had some information. Like that Wawa supervisor that came and, and said that he had overheard kids talking, that somebody really did pick Tiffany up that night. She was supposed to be going somewhere, I believe, after the graduation party, which is, I believe, why she initially left was to get ready. So who was picking her up? Who called? No answers to anything. So here we are back at, at the drawing board. Yeah, there is, again, a, a, a similar case again in, in, in Canada. I mean, a much older case, but really weird. Manner of death originally classified as homicide. So there's a young girl found at the side of the road and then changed 40 years later. Now they're saying, oh, it was an accident. I've never heard of it. I've heard accidents be reclassified as homicides because they realized later that there was staging involved, that a mistake was made. But to initially jump to the conclusion this was a murder and then say four decades later, actually, we think it's a hit and run and and they probably didn't even know that they had struck her. The part of the problem why this has been reclassified is there is 
like in Tiffany's case, missing hours in terms of the the victim's final movements. There are uh, conflicting accounts, even released publicly. One said that she was last seen leaving a roller rink and headed to a friend's house, another report. And these are publicly reported by police that no, actually she was already gone to the friend's house and then she was she was walking somewhere else when she was struck. So the fact that we don't know where she was, who she was with, the case, if, if people want to look it up, is Karen Coughlin in Lambton County, Ontario. This is really what muddies the waters. And you've got that in this case and we'll never be able really to, to, to firm up those movements. So you have to rely on other evidence. The fact that she was cremated rules out an exhumation that may have yielded additional evidence. But you're right. It's until we know for certain what steps were taken and, and what steps were missed based on, again, modern major crime adequacy standards for which, again, transit police don't really do a lot of these investigations we're just going to be in a holding pattern. So the the whole objective here was just to get people talking about this case, have some possibilities raised, explain some of the nuances in these types of investigations, including manner of death. And if this is helpful, you know, we've done our job. Exactly. There's there's some amazing people out there. I have to I have to make a shout out to a person uh, on the Tiffany Facebook page. Deborah Coombs has been kind of leading this. She's been She's been going hard on this investigation and the things that she's finding and she, she's she's just really good. So I, I had to give a shout out. She did find something on Tiffany's foot that no one else had seen. So there was like a little hole by her toe and she had pointed this out to the group and then everyone sort of speculated as to what could have happened. But things like that with a other set of eyes, Michael, you know, from the from the Cold Case Society, you always say it's a think tank of people who get together from from various life skills and they put it all together and they try to solve a crime. Well, that's what they do on this Facebook page. So uh, if everybody could kind of direct themselves there, please go check out the page, read the comments, get involved. Maybe someone will know something. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll, you'll offer something someone else hasn't, but also the petition, please, this is to get her case reopened. If, if for nothing else is to give the family a little bit of, of justice and a little bit of peace in their lives as well. So that's why we do this work. Precisely. Okay, guys. So we're going to end it here. Michael, always a pleasure doing this podcast with you. See you guys next time on Suspect Zero. Next time on Suspect Zero, the vanishings of Lois Hanna and Lisa Moss.